Well, good morning, friends. It's been, a, uh, it's been an interesting week, a crazy week, but all of that was even aside from, apart from everything that happened on Thursday. Uh, providentially, Randy was speaking with us last week when he was moving through our budget and how our church gives and uses what's given and how we partner with other Southern Baptist churches. He talked about how Southern Baptists are really heavy on disaster relief, that usually we're, we're only second to one, the American Red Cross, that they come on the scene quickly and they come in numbers and then we're right behind them quickly with numbers. And so I know a lot of you are curious as to what we're doing with that. Uh, we'll be posting the link to the site. It's sbcv.com slash tornado relief. And we'll be posting the link to that site on our Facebook, on our webpage. And so you'll get the chance to, to click through to that. And you can see how we're working uh, at Disaster Relief, what the Southern Baptists are doing. And if you're interested in getting connected with that, you'll find out details on how you can do that. But let's just spend a little time praying for, for everybody that was affected by that this week. Father, we thank you for this day. Um, there, there's nothing like, like hunkering down in a closet or a bathroom waiting for the skies to turn against you to remember that, that we're not in control and that this creation that we, we enjoy day to day is broken by sin. And so we, we praise you for the work that you've done in Jesus Christ to bring restoration, to bring, to bring healing to your creation. We long for that day. We groan with creation for that day. And I pray that in the, in the midst of all of this, those who, are, who, who suffered loss because of what happened this week, I pray for those who lost homes and those who lost family and lost friends. I pray that you would be with them, that you would be with them among your people, and that as your people go to bind up broken hearts, broken lives, broken circumstances, that you would be there with them bringing healing, bringing comfort and care, that as they, they go, that they bring the, the good news with them, that you would save souls and that there would be people who, who, though they have lost this week, have suffered loss this week, would enjoy the restoration of all things for eternity because of what's happened uh, among your people. I pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been exploring this theme. Uh, it really peeked out at us the first time at the end of the James series that Randy preached last year. But uh, even in the beginning of this year, Randy was preaching through this theme that life is better connected. And I can't remember which sermon it was, but one of the sermons, he said something to the effect of, we want this statement to rock your world. And I don't remember which sermon it was. I just remember writing it down. And I, I was thinking about uh, Matthew 13. Some of my favorite words from Jesus are Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17. Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at, at his disciples around him. He looks at you and me who, who follow Christ. And he says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And what Jesus is, is hitting on is this idea that throughout human history, throughout the story that God has been unfolding, there have been people who saw the problems and only, only knew maybe that the solution was coming, that they knew that there would be this Messiah. They knew that God would make things right, but they didn't get to see the solution unfold. But you and I, as we see Jesus, as we see his gospel, we see the solution unfold, but sometimes we're so disconnected from the story that we don't, we don't see all the problems for which the gospel is the solution, for which Christ is the solution. And so sometimes we, we, don't, we don't see the height and the, the depth and the breadth, the power and the majesty, the, the weight that there is in Jesus Christ in his 
gospel. And so to that effect, I want to uh, try to push the ball down the field a little bit on, on making a statement like life is better connected, rock our world. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a digital Bible, a Bible app, I'll be reading this passage from the New International Version, the NIV. My, my uh, Old Testament references will be from the ESV, but I'll be reading those so quickly you won't be able to catch up. So if you want to use the uh, NIV and read along with me for Ephesians, you can do that. And what I want to do is put these words from Ephesians, put them up and use them as a lens through which to look at these stories in the Old Testament, these pictures of what God has been doing all along. And hopefully they'll, they'll put flesh and blood in a, in a beating heart in a statement like life is better connected in statements like those you find in Ephesians 2. And so Ephesians is a letter that's written by a man named Paul. Paul was a missionary. And so he went around preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he was ultimately concerned for, for his churches, for the churches that he planted, was that they would be connected, that they would be united, that they would have nothing come between them. And so he's constantly trying to show how Jesus Christ and what he had done had, had wiped away every dividing line between them and anybody else in their church family. In one of Paul's letters, he's going to say that in Jesus Christ, there's neither there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. And that doesn't mean that Jesus comes in and wipes out everything that's distinct about you. What it means is those lines that we typically draw between us, that those things that typically divide us should not anymore because Christ does away with those. And so in, in, this, in this chapter, in these verses, like many places in, the, in Paul's letters, he's speaking specifically to one dividing line. He's speaking to the Jew-Gentile dividing line, the Israelite-non-Israelite dividing line. But the way that he addresses that line speaks powerfully to the other things that we let divide us. And so I'm hoping as we, as we look at these passages, as we, as we let these verses become a lens through which we see God's activity in the past, that it'll help us do three things. These are our three movements this morning. I'm hoping that these verses will help us see the, sto the story of peace, that these verses will help us see the cost of peace, and that these verses will help us see the means of peace, how we get after it. The story of peace, the cost of peace, and the means of peace. And so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, again, he, he's speaking to specifically in this moment, that Israelite, non-Israelite dividing line. In this moment, he's getting ready to speak to those non-Israelite early Christians. And he says in verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility." He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You're in the family, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so even in those verses, you can hear that before and after picture that, that Paul is giving, that in verse 12, that you were separate from Christ, you were excluded, alienated from God's people. 
that you were foreigners and strangers to all that God had promised, that you were without God in the world. Then he says, because of what Jesus has done, verse 13, you've been brought near. Verse 14, you have peace. Verse 16, you've been reconciled to one another and to God, that you're fellow citizens, that you're members of the same household, members of the same family, and are joined together into one new man, one new humanity. One of the interesting things about Paul, Paul in his, his life before he was a missionary for Jesus, he was a member of a Jewish religious sect known as the Pharisees, and he had formal training. And because of that formal training, because of his former life, more than likely, Paul would have been walking around with the Old Testament safely tucked away in his brain. You think about how much, how much agony sometimes it is to work through the Old Testament in your Bible through a year plan. This guy was laying awake at night just flipping through it in his mind pages. And so what happens very often for, for, Christ is he, or for uh, Paul is he's trying to explain the, the meaning, the significance of what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. Very often, as he looks at God's activity and what he's unfolded, unfolded in this moment in Jesus, he's looking back, he thinks back to those, those old accounts, to those old stories. He thinks about what God has done in the past, and he sees that what he's climatically done in Jesus Christ is not terribly different than how God has worked in the past, what God has been accomplishing in the past. It's just been ultimately accomplished in, in Jesus Christ. And sometimes when you're reading Paul's letters, when, when you're reading him explain what Jesus Christ has accomplished, very often you can, you can almost hear that old story floating just beneath the surface as he's looking at what Jesus has accomplished and remembering what God has done in the past. One of the places where that comes out and winks at you in these chapters, in this chapter, in these verses, is verse 15. And some of your translations if you look down, some of your translations say that he took the two groups in verse 15 and he made them into one new man. Or if you're reading the NIV with me or if you're reading another similar translation, it might say something like he made one new humanity out of the two. And both of those, both of those translations are just fine. What he's doing is, is Paul is playing on the, the Old Testament Hebrew word that can either be translated man or mankind or humanity. And it can even be a proper name in certain circumstances. The word is Adam. Now, when you hear Adam in the Old Testament, where did your mind go? Right? Yeah, your mind goes to the garden, right? Your mind goes to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the, the, the beginning, the bud of the human family. Remember, we, we're all one family. And, and the sin that brought division and dysfunction to that family. And so as Paul is, is talking about what, what God has done in Christ, he's saying, man, God has, has in Jesus Christ, in his family, he's regathering the human family in Jesus Christ. And when you go back to the book of Genesis and you, you, you look at those old accounts, you look and work your way backwards from, and, and trace all of the families back to the one first family, you see that over and over again that this has been a part of God's purposes, that part of the sweetness of what God has been accomplishing is to bring brothers back together. And so if you look at the end of the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis ends with the story about Joseph and his brothers. And even if you don't know the Bible, even if you're not a Christian, even if you know, somebody dragged you to church this morning and you just don't know anything about any of this, you probably know the story of Joseph, right? He had the coat of many colors that his daddy gave him because he was his daddy's favorite. And he's having dreams that, that one day his family is going to bow down to him. And his brothers don't particularly care for that. And so they, they take him, they throw him in a pit, they're going to kill him. But they end up selling him into slavery, and Joseph loses years. He loses his freedom. He loses his reputation as, 
as a slave and then as a prisoner. And when you, when you hear this, when you read these accounts, don't let these, these stories just pass through one ear and out the other. Inhabit the story. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Some of you, it's not a stretch to, to, to imagine what it would be like to be betrayed by even, even family, by people that you love. To lose, because, of, to because of what someone has done to lose years, to lose freedom, to lose security, to lose reputation. But God is watching Joseph, and, and God gives Joseph a, a bit of, of wisdom that he needs as he's sitting in an Egyptian jail cell, a bit of wisdom that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, needs. And so God knows that this famine is coming upon the land. He reveals this to Joseph. Joseph is able to explain to Pharaoh what's getting ready to happen and how to, how to maneuver and how to get through it. And so Joseph ends up getting elevated to the second most powerful position in all of the kingdom. Second only to Pharaoh, and in an ironic twist, his brothers come from their homeland, and they need famine relief. They need, they need relief from this famine that's hit the land. And so they come to Joseph, and they don't recognize him, and, and Joseph is testing them. And as the story unfolds, Joseph is able, because of how God has orchestrated things, to rescue his entire family from the famine. And oftentimes when we read this story, we read the story as a, a story of God's rescue, and we should. That's what it is. We need to see that God works that way. The story of God's rescue. So that's there. Sometimes we read this story as a story of personal vindication, right? Joseph was wronged, but he was faithful, and God was, was watchful over him. And God vindicated Joseph and, and, and restored Joseph. It, it, it's a story that helps us see that God works all things together for good for those who love him, right? But if you read through that story, what, what was the shape of that rescue? What was the shape of that vindication, if you're reading through this story, putting yourself in Joseph's shoes, you, you watch the lowest lows. What's the highest high for Joseph in this story? Man, he gets his brothers back. You look at, at Genesis chapter 45, when, when, when Joseph has his brothers in front of him, he hasn't yet revealed himself to them. And in verse 1, it says that Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. And so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard of it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers, his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They remembered what they did to him. They knew what was in his power. And in verse 4 it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come, come close to me. And when, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And then he threw his arms around his, his brother Benjamin and he wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and they kissed, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And this is my favorite line in the entire chapter. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. There's an embrace, there's a kiss, there's tears. And they just talk, they just catch up. And part of, the, part of the weight and part of the beauty of what God is unfolding in this story is that, man, he gets his brothers back. That God is bringing connection, that he's bringing peace between these brothers. And so that's the story of Joseph and his brothers. If you look at their dad, you look at Jacob and his brother Esau, you see a very similar story. Jacob is, is chosen by God to play a special role in this rescue mission for his creation that leads to Jesus. It's through Jacob's family that Jesus is going to come. The only problem is Jacob's kind of a knucklehead. 
And he's always taking matters into his own hands. He's always forcing the issue. He's always, he's always manipulating and scheming. And so there comes this point in his life where he preys on his older brother in a moment of weakness. And he manipulates him, and he, he ends up stealing his birthright, ends up stealing his inheritance. And his life goes on a little bit later in, in, in Jacob's life. He goes to his father, his, his elderly, nearly blind father, and lies to him and, and pretends to be his older brother, pretends to be Esau and steals Esau's blessing. And again, don't, don't just hear these stories and happen these stories. For some of you, it's not a stretch to, to imagine what it would be like to be lied about, be lied to, to have something that's rightfully yours taken from you. And so Esau has had it up to here with Jacob. Jacob has his, has his blessing. Jacob has Esau's birthright, and, and Esau has had enough. He said, I'm, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him for what he's done. And so Jacob runs away. He goes, to stay with, he goes to stay with his uncle. And wouldn't you know it, while he's away, all the guy does is win, just nonstop. He just gets richer and richer. His family grows and his family grows. And we know people like that, right, where it seems like they, they do wrong. And it just, everything just goes well for them. And so later in life, Jacob has, has prospered. He has family. He has possessions. And he's coming back to his homeland. And he remembers, he remembers what his brother said. He remembers his brother's intentions. And so he comes. And, and his best hope is that maybe he can pay his brother off. Maybe if he, maybe if he gives his brother enough possessions that, that he'll be okay and he won't do what he said he was going to do. And he divides up all his possessions, all of his family, and he sends them in waves so that at the very least, if he starts destroying, if he starts waging war, if he starts taking life, that people can get away. And so he thinks the best that he can do is either buy his brother off or, or maybe run. Man, in Genesis 33, verse 1, it says, Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children out front, Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And then it says, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau had lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he says, who are all these with you? And Jacob says, these are the children. These are the children with whom God has graciously whom grace, God has graciously given your servant. Again, there's, there's an embrace, there's kiss, there's, there's tears, there's peace. As God unfolds the story of the human family and his rescue for creation, that part of that is, is peace, part of that is reconciliation and reconnection. And for some of us, there are people in our lives who if somehow we could manage to get peace with them, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that what that would look like is an embrace and tears, falling in their arms, crying on their neck, and then just, just talking. And there are some dividing lines that seem like they could never be erased, whether it's individuals, whether it's you and that person, and they know what they did, whether we just look out in our culture and we see groups of people and just say, there's never going to be peace between those groups. They'll, they'll never get along. They will never come together. And that brings us to the first set of brothers. Genesis chapter 4, we see Cain and Abel. And both brothers bring offerings to the Lord. Abel brings his in faith. Cain doesn't. And God accepts Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his offering. 
And so Cain speaks to Abel. He talks to Abel, and he, he lures him out to a field, and he murders him. And that story ends with no reconciliation, no peace, no happy tears. It ends with a dead brother and Cain wandering from the presence of the Lord, an aimless wanderer on the earth. And that account helps us to see the, the cost of peace. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, and passages like Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, over and over again they attribute this work, this reconciliation, this, this peace that's taken place to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the, the body of Jesus Christ, and the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 2 verse 16, it says that he reconciled both through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. In verse 13 it says, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you haven't been reading the Bible, you don't know how, how the Bible speaks to us. That's probably some of the strangest language that Christians use. It's like, why, why are Christians always talking about the blood? Why are Christians always singing about the blood of Jesus? And what is that? Like, we're, we're, we're modern people, right? Are we getting ready to throw somebody in a volcano? Like, like, what is that? What are we talking about? It's actually not that strange if you know if you know what it's talking about, if you know what it's getting after. And this is, this is what it's getting after. If you've ever been just horribly hurt by somebody, you know that there's this distinct awareness that they've cost you something, that, that you've, you, you, they, they've racked up a debt. You might have lost time because of what they did. You might have lost an opportunity because of what they did. You think about Joseph, lost years, lost freedom. Think about Esau, he lost what was rightfully his. And so we look at those people, and if there's going to be any meaningful peace between the two, somebody has to pay that cost. And that can go a few ways, right? The first way that can go is you, you remain strangers and aliens. They remain outsiders to you. And from a distance, you just make them pay the cost. We even use that language. There's that marketplace, that economy there. We even use the language as I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to pay them back because there's a cost there. And so they may remain outsiders to you, and from a distance, you just deprive them of your good graces, right? You just, you hate on them in your heart. You're bitter against them. You maybe gossip about them. Maybe you actually retaliate. Maybe you actually take matters into your hands and you do something, but that cost has to be paid. Or maybe that person comes to you and they say, look, I, I know I messed up. I'm sorry. I, I want us to be okay. And so I, I'm going to straighten all that out. I'm going to go, I'm going to talk to that, that group. I'm going to go get that back. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you back what you lost in that moment. I'll, 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 I'll settle things. I'll, I'll make things right. And man, there could be peace there. They, they, they've, they've paid that cost. They've recouped that loss. Or maybe that person comes to you and they say, look, I'm sorry but that ship has sailed. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't get back what's been lost. I can't give you that time back. I can't give you that opportunity back. And so you, out of the, maybe the grace in your heart, maybe you just in mercy, out of the kindness of your heart, say, you know what? That's okay. I forgive you. We, we, we can be okay. Now, that cost didn't go away. It's not you, you yourself paid that cost. You absorbed that cost. You suffered that loss so that there could be a, a peace between you. And one of the things that we see over and over again in the Bible, one of the things that we see over and over again in these accounts is that God himself very often is in the habit of paying the costs and recouping the losses necessary for peace. You look at Joseph and his brothers, Joseph suffered horrible loss, right? Years, opportunity, freedom. You get to the end of the story, 
And, and Joseph is able to see all that God has done, and he's able to see how he's restored Joseph. He's able to see how God has elevated him and bestowed on him wealth and freedom and position. When Joseph names his sons, he names his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. The two, the two names sound like the two Hebrew words for forget and fruitful, because Joseph is going to say later, God has made me forget my hardship. I don't even, that was, I don't even remember that. God has made me fruitful in the place where I was afflicted. Man, God, God helped Joseph recoup his losses, that he paid Joseph back, and that paved the way for peace. You don't think peace would have been more difficult if Joseph was still sitting in the jail cell when his brothers came around? You think about Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was perfectly aware that Jacob had racked up a debt. He was going to make him pay, right? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to settle the score, and, and Jacob knows that he owes that debt. And so when he comes back to his, his homeland, he, he's hoping that if he, he helps Esau recoup his losses, if he gives him enough possessions, maybe he, he, he can settle the score and, and things can be okay between them. But after those verses that we read, they, they embrace, they kiss, they, they, they cry on one another, they talk. After those verses, Jacob's trying to give Esau these possessions. He's trying to, trying to recoup his losses. And Esau looks at him and he says, it's okay. I have enough. It's okay. And it might have been that, that maybe God was at work in Esau's life such that he, he saw how God had restored some things, or, or maybe just the work of God on his heart, he was prepared to absorb that loss himself. He, he, was, he was ready to absorb that cost himself so that he could have peace with his brother. But Jacob prevails on him. Jacob convinces him. And then out of the wealth of of what God had provided for Jacob, Jacob helps Esau recoup his losses. He helps to, to begin to help him recoup some of what he's lost, to, to pay that cost. Man, that, that made for peace. That, that paved the way for peace. But then you get to the first set of brothers. You trace the story all the way back to the family from which all families come. And at the end of that story, there's no happy tears, there's no reconciliation and Cain is distinctly aware of what he owes for what he's done to his brother. He knows that the only cost that can pay the debt that he owes is his own life. He's concerned that if he goes, if he goes around that somebody's going to kill him because of what he has done, but, but God doesn't make him pay that cost. And, and even if God hadn't had mercy, even if God did make him pay that cost, that wouldn't have brought his brother back. Then you would just would have had two dead brothers and still no peace, still no reconciliation. And so as we trace the, the story of all families back to the, the, one, the one first family, we're, we're confronted with a problem. The, the problem of, of what do you do with, with insurmountable costs? What do you do with losses that are beyond recuperation? In a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, helps us to understand that because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, there is no debt for which there is not payment. If you've cost somebody time, if you've, if you've cost somebody opportunity, if, you've, if the cost, if the debt is somebody's life, it's, it's their own blood, Jesus has given that on the cross. And beyond that, he's paid the, the cosmic debt that you owe because every sin that you sin against your brother or against your sister is also against your father. And in that way, Jesus has made peace both with our family, our, our, our brothers and sisters, and with our Father. Yeah, but that doesn't bring Abel back. Yes, it does. 
When Jesus makes a statement like, I am the resurrection and the life, when Jesus dies and then on the third day raises from the dead, that's a promise. That's a demonstration that in Jesus Christ, there is no loss that has to be permanent. You lost time? He can give you that. You lost opportunity? He can give you that. You lost stuff? He can give you that. He, he, he holds out an eternity where all of creation will be your playground. Even if the cost, even if the loss is a life, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I can, I can restore that. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of peace, as Paul will call it in chapter 6 of Ephesians, says that, that God our Father sent his son to become one of the brothers, and he's a brother that's better than Joseph. Because even though he's sold by our sin, when God vindicates him and raises him with all authority on heaven and earth, he doesn't use his position to, to get revenge on us. He, he turns around and he uses his power and authority to rescue us. He's a brother that's better than Jacob, a brother that doesn't, that doesn't steal our inheritance and our blessing. Instead, he steals our curse, the curse that we deserve on the cross, and then turns around and bestows on us the blessing and inheritance that only rightly belong to him. And he's a brother that's better than, than Abel, who offers himself as an offering of faith, who's slain by our sin, but whose blood, Hebrews 13 says, speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out, the cost must be paid. Jesus' blood cries out, the cost has been paid. And if Jesus was just a guy who died spreading a positive message, that means that, that there really was no payment. And if Jesus, that, that whole resurrection thing is just a myth, that means that any loss you suffer really is a permanent loss, that those things can't be restored. And if those things are true, your heart will never have the food it needs to make peace with the people with whom you most need it. But if Jesus is the sinless son of God who dies on the cross in the place of sinners and then raises on the third day, that means that there is no cost for which there is not payment. There is no loss that can't be recouped. That Jesus Christ himself has paid the cost and recouped the losses needed to have peace. And unless you see that about him and what he's done, you will rob yourselves of the means of peace. And one of my favorite verses in this chapter, verse 17, says that Christ came and he proclaimed, he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. Whether you are near to God or far from God, you need this gospel of peace to work itself deeply into your heart. One, to enter into his family. You need to grab onto this gospel of peace and trust what Jesus has done to come into his family. But if you want to enjoy life there, man, you, you constantly need to be singing that that gospel of peace, counseling that gospel of peace, working that gospel of peace deep into your heart until you're convinced that all the debts are paid and you can never really suffer permanent loss. One of my favorite quotes, I don't know how, how faithful the quote is, uh, but it's often attributed to Winston Churchill, the prime minister of the United Kingdom during the Second Great World War. And, and the, the way the story goes is that Winston Churchill was speaking with his faithful valet, and his valet says to him, you know, You've been very rude to me. To which Winston Churchill pauses and he says, Yes, but I am a great man. All right, try that the next time you're arguing with somebody. You know, you're sassing me pretty bad. Yeah, but I'm the man, baby. Can't say nothing. 
See how well it goes over. And by, by any estimation, Winston Churchill was a great man at a great hour in history. But what's reflected in that quote? Hey, you know, you, you've been very rude to me. You're, you're racking up a debt. Oh, I know. But I'm a great man. The implication there is that, that the achievement is what pays that debt. And this is the default mode of the human heart. Every human heart knows that it's racking up debt. And some of the most miserable people to be around are the people who actually think that they are paying those debts off. And you can do that in street clothes, and you can do that in church clothes. In street clothes, maybe it's because, you know, you're so good looking. Maybe it's because your job is so important. Maybe you're so educated. Maybe you're well-known in your circles. Or you can do that in church clothes, right? There are people, those are probably the most miserable people to be around. The people who come into a building like this every week and they think because of what they, what they wear, because of what they drop in the plate, because of the things that they've never done, that those are the things and not this gospel of peace, not this Jesus that has paid their debts. The goofiest thing that they do is sometimes they think that they put God in their debt. And whether you do that in street clothes or whether you do that in church clothes, if you think that you're paying off that debt, that does, that does a couple things. One thing that does is you are constantly perfectly okay with racking up more debts, right? I know I was rude to you, but I paid that off. I'm a great man. I'm a church man. I'm a successful man. The other thing that that does is if they're, if they're paying off their debts, if they're tallying their debts, they're looking for you to do the same. And they're constantly, they're constantly counting, they're constantly tallying to see, okay, have you, pay, have you paid for that? No, have, have, you, have you, I, you, you took this from me. Have you given that back to me? And they're constantly trying to settle the score. And all of that just totally destroys this peace. But instead, no, we, we, we love our enemies. We, we pray for those who persecute us, knowing that the payment has been made in, in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we pray for, for our enemies to, to avail themselves if they're not in Christ or remind themselves if they are that the, the, the price has already been paid so that both of you can begin to recoup all, of, all that you've lost, especially your brother, especially your, your brother or sister, especially the person. And so trust Christ. Don't, don't ignore the cost of your sin and then have to pay for it, spend an eternity paying it off. And for heaven's sake, don't try to pay that debt yourself. You'll make us all miserable. And, and, and don't, hold, don't hold your losses over, over people's heads. Don't act as if those things are, are lost permanently. In Jesus, everything can be restored. Trust that Jesus and his cross and his blood has paid every cost and can recoup any loss. And so inside his family, there is no peace that can't be experienced. There's no forgiveness that can't be extended. And working that gospel of peace into your heart, clinging on to that gospel of peace and that Jesus Christ it's the only way into his family, and it's the only way to enjoy life there, the connected life, the life of peace. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that even those of us who, who follow you, even those of us who follow your son, sometimes we act as if people owe us stuff. Sometimes we act as if your son has not paid for all of that. Sometimes we forget that we are, we are heirs with Christ of creation and that we will spend an eternity working and playing in your presence. Sometimes we act as if we really lose things. 
and that those things can't be restored, I pray that we would sing this gospel of peace. I pray that we would pray this gospel of peace, teach this gospel of peace, that we would counsel this gospel of peace to one another, that we would remind one another of of what we have in Christ, payment and restoration. I pray for any in in this room, any who who are listening any who are watching by simulcast, wherever they are, if they haven't availed themselves of the payment and the restoration that there is in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would do a work in their heart so that they would cling to your son, that they would have their, their cost paid, their debts paid, and that anything that they may have lost, they can look forward to, a, to an eternity of restoration. I pray that you would do this work in our hearts by the by the awesome power of your Holy Spirit, as we meditate on these stories, as we look at what you've done in the past and look forward to what you'll do in the future. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.